The Pharisees asked Jesus an incredibly insightful question one day. Insightful because of the answer he gave, not necessarily because of the question they asked. Now, it happened shortly after Jesus called Matthew to follow him. Recall, Matthew invited, here's the quote from the Bible, many tax collectors and sinners, and they all came to dine with Jesus and the other disciples. So the Pharisees wanted to know why Jesus ate with them. Of course, they asked the disciples why he did it rather than just confronting Jesus directly. Now, upon overhearing them, Jesus replied something like this. It's in Matthew 9, 12. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Why do you eat with them? Here's what he said again. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. With those few words, Jesus reframed sin from strictly a moral issue into something more far-reaching. He shifted sin from a mere external behavior to something internal. In other words, he presented sin as a sickness, an illness. He proposed that sin hinders wholeness and health. He posited that sin was a distortion of the image of God, of that person that we see reflected back to us in the mirror. In in other words, sin isn't just a bad thing. It's far worse than that, actually. In in fact, the the more I study the topic, the, the more I gaze at the Father's grace, the more I believe that the moral aspect of sin is actually the least important part of it. You see, the greater issue is this. Sin creates a distortion of our unique form of the greatness we were given from the beginning. Sin, it fractures that mirror image that we discussed earlier a couple episodes ago. It keeps us from seeing who we really are, and then it hinders wholeness and completion of us walking in the reality of who we were designed to be. Now, I I used to believe that sin separated us from God, but because of Jesus' work on the cross, it no longer does. Now, now read it here, and I want to note some of the emphases just as I'm going, because I want to kind of get this idea out of the way. It's in Romans 8, 35-39. Here, I'm just reading. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Okay, that's the result of sin right there. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I I know, it sounds like an odd way to present a topic that's usually presented as right versus wrong with the legal type of standing that we have in God, but notice that like there's nothing that separates us, so the issue of sin becomes something even greater. Let's go back to God's original intent. In Romans 3.23, it's probably one of the most widely known and often quoted Bible verses in the church. Paul tells us that everyone has sinned. That's right. Everybody. Here's the here's the entire verse in the New King James Version. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about this verse is this. It's the second half of that sentence. I'm going to read it again. For all have sinned, here's the second part, and fall short of the glory of God. Now, now before I go any farther, 
let, let me tell you that I didn't discover what I'm about to tell you. Okay, okay. The truth is, I attended a conference and I heard it from another guy a few years ago during the opening remarks of his Open Heavens conference. That's one that Bill Johnson from Bethel Church in Redding, California does every single year. He actually said something like this. He said, everybody knows that verse, Romans 3.23. He reminded us, you, you can probably quote it right now, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Bill highlighted, though, that although we focus only on that first half of the verse, all have sinned, we need to keep both halves of the statement in mind when we read it. Notice, he said, you were originally destined for that second half, glory. Glory is God's intention for you. And he added, he said, I'm not just talking about eternity. I'm talking about right here, right now, you, glory. Then he strung together a few more verses that elaborate on what this might mean. Uh, for instance, he said, just kind of my recollection of what he was teaching. He said, Moses reflected the glory of God that came to him. God's glory that shone on him, he absorbed it, and it was visible to everyone around him. Now, now you see that in Exodus 34, 29, and 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18. Bill then explained that because Christ in you is your hope of glory, as we read in Colossians 1.27, that we have this unprecedented opportunity, something which people like Abraham, Moses, David, and others who lived before the time of Jesus, they didn't have. You're in an era because of the cross, Bill continued, and because there's nothing the cross did not resolve permanently, whereby Isaiah actually calls you to something incredible. All right, so then he took the crowd to Isaiah 60, verse 1, where the prophet encourages us to, get this, arise and shine for your light has come. That's the quotation, arise and shine for your light has come. Bill elaborated. Notice that this verse doesn't say to reflect God's glory as if you're simply transmitting something that's not your own. Rather, it says to shine it. You possess that glory. It's part of who you are. Now, if, if you're thinking back, if you've been listening to a couple of these episodes recently, in I think the second talk, uh, it was titled something like, Jesus Shows Us What We're Really Like, Jesus Reveals Who We Really Are. I, I discussed this whole thing, that the glory is your identity. It is who you are. So you might want to swing back and listen to that one. The truth is, though, we often carry labels from our past experiences, as well as the names we've been called and the titles we've been given. And let's be real about it, you know, with each other. Sometimes the worst critic is the one that's inside of our heads. The message of the cross is, no, that may have been who you were, but you're different now. Things have changed. Your condemnation is gone. You're now free to be the person whom you really are. Or, to say it another way, your past describes you, but it no longer defines you. Or, or, to say it this way, your past explains where you've been, but it doesn't establish where you're going. And who you are is that mirror reflection of Jesus, radiating glory that we discussed several talks ago. Now, I've got this graphic uh, that I'm going to actually put in the show notes because this really kind of leads me to um, where I'm going to go with all of these talks as we kind of work through identity and as we work through then the presence and the expression of the presence and then getting getting this full perspective. And, and the reason like I, I think I've kind of landed on this part of the talk and even in the Life Lift book that I've been putting together with my dad, the reason we kind of land on this identity topic um, really about who Jesus is and who we are because of him is 
fundamentally, like this is where you have to start. If you don't rest secure in your true identity, you'll seek to create one. And you might use even serving others to do it. I know, like in my past, I used ministry to to really bolster up my identity. I've been there. I've done it. Um, if you don't walk in relationship with the Spirit, if you don't really get that identity secure and, and then walk in that presence, you'll seek to fill relational reserves through interacting with people, even in unhealthy ways. I, I've done that too. Like the identity is fundamental. It, it is something that is the basis of everything. And it's this idea too that we don't ever finish. As we continue walking in our gifts and our calling, we continually refine who we are and we move more in sync with the Spirit. All the gifts that we have, all the callings that we have, all the expressions of God moving through us towards others for their benefit, they are all relational and we're always in process. So Paul uses this concept of, here's how he says it, moving from one degree of glory to another. That's in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it's actually, that, that context of that verse is actually beholding as in a mirror his reflection were transformed from one degree of glory to another. So you start seeing how all of these concepts begin fitting together. Now, that said, you and I, we are designed to radiate the glory of Christ that's in us. And Paul described it this way. Philippians 2.15. He said, you shine like stars in the universe. Now, astronomers tell us that stars shine. They don't reflect. The moon isn't a star. It's just a massive rock. It simply reflects and reveals light from the sun. On its own, the moon looms cold and dark. Hence that phrase, the dark side of the moon. The sun, on the other hand, is a star. It is its own source of fuel. Its radiance comes from within. And here's what I'm saying. So it is with you. You don't simply reflect God's glory. You possess it. You shine it. It is who you are. As a result, glory is now what you do. You see, in the same way that sin isn't disconnected from sinners, glory isn't disconnected from the redeemed. So that, that's back to that question. What's the worst part of sin? The most hideous part of sin is that it keeps you from that glory, from that glory that you have to glorify your creator, from shining as the star that you really are to reveal the glory of God in Christ. Now, I'm guessing that you probably haven't heard it presented that way much before. So let's dig a little bit deeper because if the result of sin is that we miss the glory for which we're created, it might help to then define what this sin actually is. Okay, so the, the word for sin is hamartia in the Greek language. That's the language the New Testament was written in. So when we break it down, we, we get this ha, that's the prefix. It means without. Um, that is, something is missing. We lack something that we need. And usually we actually see, sense, and feel that lack. The first part of that verse then that we just quoted, Romans 3.23, uh, it says this, all are without, all are lacking. So again, all have sinned, all are without, all are ha, without. Okay, martia, that's the second part of the word. It comes from the Greek word meros. Okay, so hamartia, without, Maros, without Martia, without Maros. Uh, a Maros is a form, it is a design, it's a word that's often used of architecture, of craftsmanship, 
of art. So when you put the pieces of that word together, hamartia, without form, without design, without architecture, without creative construction, you put it together, it says all of us are lacking our form. We're lacking our design. We're without who we were created to be. And again, remember, we were created to experience glory. Now, I just gave you a lot of notes or a lot of ideas. So I'm, I'm going to put a graphic in the show notes where you can actually see the breakdown of this word because it is a beautiful image that sounds a lot less legalistic than we usually define that word sin. And, and, and the definition, again, not trying to minimize sin and not trying to minimize the ramifications and the consequences. Oh, my goodness. Like if, if you want to talk about reaping what you sowed, I'll sit down with you and I'll tell you a great story that is my story. And I think that definition, though, without form, without design, living not who we're exactly created to be, I think that actually describes the plight of most people. You've probably heard people say things like this. I just don't feel like I'm doing what I was created to do. Or... I want to find out what I'm really great at, and then I want to pour myself into that. Or maybe one more example, I want my life to matter. I want to be doing something that makes a difference. I want to be doing the thing I was created for. Again, you've probably heard those phrases, and if you're like me, you've actually said them more than one time. And In fact, this might be a repeating mantra that goes over and over throughout your head as you get up you know, and go to work or as you come in. Like There might be this sense that there's something more. Whenever these statements or statements, sentences similar to them appear, we really resonate with what Paul said. We've stepped away from who we were originally designed to be. We've moved from glory that we were created for, and we've moved to something else. We've fallen short of that destiny. Now, here's where it really gets interesting. When Paul described how you were created, how I was created, he actually used craftsmanship language, like, like God was intentionally forming and putting something together. Paul actually wrote it like this in Ephesians 2.10. He said, you are his workmanship, created for good works he planned beforehand, before time began, that you would walk in. Now, I want, I want to point out a few things from that verse. First is this, you are a workmanship, an individual creation. You're not a mass-produced, assembly line kind of creature. You're one of a kind. Uh, My dad used to say it like this when I was growing up. I remember it was really a phrase he repeated as he was preaching over and over. He, He just, for a season, drilled it into people's heads in our church. You are a unique, unrepeatable miracle of God. That's what Paul's saying right here. You are intentionally a unique, unrepeatable miracle of God. Now, that word workmanship here in the Greek language of the New Testament, it's actually the word poema. It's a word used of art, craftsmanship, and poetry. I mean, you just probably recognized it. Poema, it's the basis of our English word poem. It's the imagery of a master designer creating something extraordinary, intentionally, intimately, with his innermost, purest thoughts, then expressing it with his hands. Again, Dad used to say it, you are a unique, unrepeatable miracle of God. We see imagery like this 
all throughout the Bible that God is a potter and we are clay and that he's crafting us, molding us, shaping us into something exquisitely wonderful. Now, this verse about workmanship, it's part of Paul's same thought process as Ephesians 2, 8. So uh, if, if you're reading like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, in the original manuscript, it's all just one long run-on sentence. And so let, let, me, let me read it because you're going to recognize pieces of this verse, but you got to understand they all fit together. Here it is, uh, English Standard Version. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, and the end of that verse about workmanship, it leads me to the next observation. Okay, so the first observation is, first of all, you are a workmanship, an individual creation. Second observation is this. Paul uses the same grace and says that the same grace that transforms you from sin to light is the exact same grace that has a destiny for you. So your salvation and the purposes you walk in, those are not separate concepts. God doesn't give you the one, forgiveness of sin, without providing you with the other, a destiny of glory. In some sense, we understand grace. Uh, now, we, we may not grasp the full measure of grace in our lives, but we realize that we bring nothing to salvation. Jesus does it all. In equal part, what I want you to see is that same grace doesn't just redeem us, it actually empowers us. It enlivens us to walk back into who we were originally intended to be, to embrace our unique form that sin distorted, and then to live that form. Okay, third observation. Paul says God planned all of this beforehand. That, that's the word. He planned this, prepared this beforehand. Most Bible commentators suggest that this means God ordained your uniqueness a long, long time ago. Um, maybe to quote Psalm 139.13, David realized that God intentionally created him, and he just spelled it out like this. For you, for my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Uh, Jeremiah, he was one of the Old Testament prophets. He said God not only designed him, but that God also had a unique destiny for him. Uh, God literally, here's the word he uses, set him apart for a great work. Jeremiah 1.5, it says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And he set him apart to be a prophet. Get that. Before he was born, uh, Isaiah, another prophet uh, that foretold the birth of Jesus, um, Isaiah reminds us that the same God who created the cosmos is the one who created you. That leads many commentators to believe that God had a plan for you, not only before you were born, but before time began, because that's, you know, before time began is when the creation happened. I Isaiah 44, 24, it says this, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So in that passage, you see, I'm the creator. I stretched out the heavens. Oh, by the way, also, I redeemed you. I saved you. Oh, by the way, I knit you together in the womb. You see all the concepts kind of circling together there. Um, Paul, the most quoted New Testament author in, in my mind, he reminds us that it is God's grace that does all of this. And, and I want you to notice something here extraordinary from Galatians 1.15. 
Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, because that's kind of the lead on to an idea, he who set me apart before I was born called me by his grace. Notice what Paul's doing. He says the same thing about himself that David, Jeremiah, and Isaiah all declared. God had planned something amazing for him, which, which I think he does for you too. And he did that a really, really long, long time ago. Uh, here's what's extraordinary about it. Paul actually killed Christians when he was an adult. In, in other words, he tells us that God's grace is so radical that the Father destined Paul's goodness before he ever stumbled in sin. And even then, as grandiose, as astronomically bad as Paul's sin was, that waywardness couldn't derail what the Father wanted to do through him. In other words, no sin is great enough to erase God's purposes for you. People will tell you that it is. People will look down upon you. People that you once trusted will say, as honestly I've been told, that you forfeited your call. No. The same grace that saves you is the same grace that created you a long time ago for some extraordinary purpose. And with eternity in view, God already foreknew and saw everything past, present, and future that you would do and still outlined something radical for you. All right, now, now that we know all of that, it makes all the more sense that Paul told the Galatian church. It was one of his closest groups of believers that he walked with that he Here's the word. He travailed like a mother in birth pains until Christ was formed in them. That's Galatians 4.19. To him, their spiritual awakening, it was akin to something like a new person being born, which again, that's really how scripture portrays it, that an old self dies and a new one comes alive. In fact, we've talked about that in a couple of the previous uh, talks on this podcast. In, in, In other places, Paul actually wrote, now get this word, He wrote using the word about being transformed. And I love how that word really closely relates to meros or or the idea of of form, of that unique architectural design that's on you, being transformed into your meros. You were with hamartia, without the form, and now we're going to be transformed, moved back into the correct form that we were designed and called forth from the beginning. Okay, Paul said the way to begin this process was by renewing your mind, um, by seeing things differently than you've ever viewed them before. Um, That's in Romans 12, 1 1 and 2. He said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, And then he called that church in Romans 15, 15 to remember their form, to remember and recall who they were designed to be. Uh, all throughout ancient literature, that word meros is often used of blueprints, of designs for buildings. And if the design isn't solid, the final product is distorted from what the architect originally intended. So Paul reminds us that we have a perfect design. Sin isn't just a moral issue then. Sin is the decision to walk away from that eternal design. Now, I, I love this because rather than appealing to a legalistic do versus don't mentality. Paul is calling you, he's calling me to something greater, to elevate ourselves above the rules of right versus wrong, and then to walk in the beauty of who we were designed, destined to be. Now, there is a catch to all of this. After reading about your gifts, and after studying sin, and after learning your calling, and you know, and really looking at the idea of a foreordained destiny, 
Paul cautions us and he says, don't go full throttle into good deeds mode. Like don't just run from sin and run to good stuff. He he cautions us that we don't only distort our form with the bad things we do with sin. He says that we can actually do this with our greatest hits moments. Okay, so that sounds like a whiplash. Let me read it and then we'll make an observation. He told the Philippian church, Philippians 3, 4 through 9, I'm just going to read it. If someone else think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, meaning confidence in their ability to walk in in glory is what he's saying on, on their own. He says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm of a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I followed the law and I was faultless. So, so what he's doing there is he's giving all his like church credentials. He was saying like, hey, I was I was like a good guy. Like I, w- I was really one of the best of the best, um, d- despite you know the sin that he was doing, which he thought was like morally following the law. Now catch this. But whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or from the good deeds that I do, but from that which is found through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, verse 7 in that whole passage is super interesting. The word Paul uses for loss is the same word we use for for poop. He, He doesn't say our righteous actions are poop. Rather, he says that compared to the greatness of a living encounter with Jesus, compared to that, they're like poop. And he concludes with this. He says, I want to know him, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And again, I would say like that's the same power of the Spirit that now lives and moves through you. And Paul reminded us just a few talks ago that as we behold in the mirror, we we're being transformed into that image. And looking in the mirror is like looking at the face of Jesus. Or say it another way, looking at Jesus and looking at his face is like looking in a mirror. And we're being transformed into that form. And the most radically bad part of sin is that it keeps us from that form. It keeps us from being transformed into that because you can only really like live one form at a time. Make sense? Our unique form, it is to reveal the Messiah. It is to use our personalities, our gifts. He shows us who we are and then he releases us to walk in it. Now, In the next talk, I'm going to come back and I'm going to start talking about maybe this other concept of living, walking in the presence. For this point, though, here's what I want to do. I want to sign off like I do every single talk and sign off and just pray and bless and say, maybe just release it like this. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he be gracious to you and shine his face of favor on you that has called you forth to this unique design, this unique destiny from the beginning, from before you were ever created. This unique design that called forth, that he created, that 
still saw the faults, that still saw the flaws, that still saw the ditches that you would jump in, and none of them disqualify you. None of them hinder you from being who you're designed to be. It's time to just get up, shake it, and move on the path to the form, the transformation, the, the, the marrows that has been yours from the beginning. Because the greatest issue with sin, the greatest issue with self-righteousness is that it distorts the very image of glory that you're designed to carry. Grace, peace, till next time. Shalom.